Welcome to a brand new episode of Bad History. Bad History. I am joined this week, like every single other week, with my co-host and esteemed colleague and accredited author and uh, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> every week I'm like, I should really go into this with like a lot of different descriptions for you. And you never plan. And I never plan ahead. But I mean, it, would it be this podcast if we planned ahead? Uh, I didn't even plan for this week. I'm going completely off the cuff. Off the cuff. Week. Cool. Let's do well, it. Yeah, sure. All right. My name's Steven. Uh, did I already say that? I don't think I said that. Well, anyway. And welcome back to a brand new episode of Bad History. This week, Dave, what topic are we covering this week? Animal, Steven. Fuzzy little critters. What does that even mean? I don't I, know. I don't know. I, I, yeah, I didn't know what that meant when you said it, but it was just so good. It was a listener suggestion, so... Here you go, scumbags. It's the Animal Podcast. It's not animals who changed history, animals in history, the history of animals. It's just animals. Just animals. I don't know. We're just, just animals. Gonna, we're just going to talk about animals for a while. If you a got while. a story that has something history and something animals, fits the description. I didn't do either of those. So. Okay, yeah. Yeah, well. I just wrote about um, the Middle Ages. <laughs> It's kind of my MO every week, and I just kind of hope it fleshes out into something that fits the topic. Well, I think we figured it out. We we figured, we, we cracked the code. We figured out, figured out the secret puzzle box, and we we kind of we kind of cracked this nut. And we kind of we got we got two two good stories that we're going to tell about animals. animals. Uh, um, anyway, uh, I I was going to say something, and I lost my train of thought majorly. In a, in a, I lost my train of thought in a major way, Dave. Mm. Uh, it will come back to me probably. Uh, so last week we talked about unknown mythological stories in history, which was a lot of fun. I had a good time doing that. Uh, and, and so this week we're talking about animals. And, uh, if you haven't checked out that unknown mythological history episode, story episode, you can check that out. Uh, but Dave, how was your week? Uh, (laughs) My week was crazy. It was interesting, and it was exciting, and it was terrifying. Um, it was a little damp, but it's super warm now, and that's all. Nothing exciting to tell you. I didn't watch any movies or read any books or play any video games at all this week. Tight. Dead serious. Tight. <laughs> what did I do this week? I have no idea. I played this- Cards Against Humanity at a friend's house, and I won. Cool. There you go. Cool. That's, that's literally all I did. This week. Good week, Dave. Steven. Yeah. Same question. Um. Oh shit! What did I do this week? Uh, this week, I experienced the fresh hell that is doing my taxes. That you were a late. You were a little late there. Steve. No, dude. Taxes are due. Uh, at the time of recording this episode today. And I got them turned taxes in. Taxes are due on the 15th. They're due on the 18th, my dude. 15th. April 18th. 15th is tax day. Let me go ahead and look this bad boy up right now just to prove you wrong. Okay. Tax. Oh, no, that's take, not tax. Tax day. Tax day, Monday, April 18th. My dude. Anyway. Uh, anyway. <laughs> anyway. So I experienced kind of just that that kind of hellscape for uh, for pretty much my whole weekend. And uh, it was it was terrible. 
It was just awful. Everything that did go wrong or could go wrong did go wrong. So it was just terrible. It was just it was just terrible. I mean, I I think overall, like I had a good week. I'm not dead, so like I think that's a win in my book. But the taxes sucked. Sometimes I'd rather be dead. Really? Like finals week? Dave, do we need do we need to just like talk about this? Like do we need to do we need to take this episode to talk about your whole like mind space? You know how when you have all those exams and papers due and you don't do them? Until like the day before. Their deadlines are closing in and you still don't do them. And then like you you reach a moment where you're just like, I would rather die. I'd rather die. (laughs) I I had that moment. I shit you not. I had that moment every single day of my life, junior (laughs) year of high school, when we took AP Physics. Yeah, pretty much. Oh, my God. I would walk to AP Physics the last last period of the day. I'd be walking to AP Physics and thinking to myself, I could get hit by a bus right now. It would be better than what I'm about to do. Anyway, anyway let's let's move on to the history. Let's move on. This has been a depressing <laughs> opening. <laughs> this, this has sucked. <laughs> this is the worst opening we've ever done. And right before we recorded this, I was like, hey, try to keep it normal this time. Yeah, I'm tired of these crazy openings. And then fucking just play the music. Just play the music. All right. I'm not even singing it. All right. Are we not going to sing it? Doom. Okay, doom, Steven. Doom, 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 doom. Okay, Steven. <laughs> so the animal story that I chose, um, I guess it's not really a story. I want to talk today about horses in the context of the Mongol Empire. Okay? Okay. Okay, you should respond to me. <laughs> I did. What? What did I just do, Dave? Okay, so if you don't know about uh, the Mongols, Mongolia, the Khans, then you probably don't know that they are, without a doubt, the greatest horse culture that has ever existed. Like hands down, hands up. Everybody says they're the people of the horse. These people are the people of the fucking horse. Okay? There's a traditional Mongol saying, and it goes, A Mongol without a horse is like a bird without the wings. And the reason why horses are so So a penguin. So a penguin, right? Or a kiwi, if you like. Or the noble ostrich. So the but reason ostriches are, are fucking terrifying. Let's just be super honest with each other here. They're the ugliest animal I've ever seen. I always say this to people: like their head looks like the grossest thing ever. Look up, look up, dude. One right I watched now. a video of Steve Irwin straight up like murking an ostrich with his bare hands, like grabbing. He it. just like takes him out, like he chases this ostrich down and like tackles it. Going back to animals. Uh, I mean, we're gonna keep going mentioning to Steve Irwin because he is, is the, the animal Steve guy. Irwin podcast. <laughs> so anyway, the reason why horses are so important to Mongol culture is because of the Eurasian Steppe. Now, if you look at a map of Asia, but like a real map of Asia, not like the political maps we have, mm-hmm. where they're all it's all flat and stupid, like a topographic map. Yeah, no. Look at a topographic map, but then look at like a globe, for example. Okay. Europe is a very small kind of peninsula of mainland Asia, pretty much. Like, 
they're connected. It's one thing. The reason that they're two is strange. And culturally and historically, they've been really separate for a long time, for all of time. And it's hard to understand why, especially when I talk about the Eurasian steppe. So when you look at this map of Asia, there's this large flat area, sort of like right in the middle known as the Eurasian steppe. It starts in Mongolia and continues all the way to the Danube River. Fucking long, flat, expansive land. It's open grasslands with forests scattered about. But there's no real huge physical boundaries. It's just fucking flat. Yeah, I'm, and this, I'm, I'm, scope, I'm scoping it out right now. It's pretty flat. You're scoping it out right it's pretty now? pretty flat. This suited a strong nomadic lifestyle of the peoples who lived there. Because without these physical boundaries, what what stopped you from moving to greener pastures? Or if a place got too cold or too hot, you just moved. And this is where the Mongolian culture was born. And alongside it, of course, the greatest horse culture of history. So the cultural background of the Mongol people really shows how important horses are. The soul of a Mongolian is a wind horse. In Tangerism, the traditional shamanistic religion of the Mongols, there is an equestrian deity called Kisayan Tingri, and his job is to protect the souls of the wind horse. Um, the Mongolian coat of arms has a horse with wings on it. Um, in art and literature... Horses are pretty much omnipresent. Whether a horse is a common character in the folklore or the hero of the story, there's always a horse, right? And if their horse isn't the main character, then the hero has a horse that is like an extension of him, right? So something really important to know is horses in Mongolian culture aren't given names because they are seen as extensions of their riders. They're just described by appearance, usually their color. So here's a really funny story that I think you'll appreciate, right? So there's one famous named horse, a uh, Mongolian horse. His name's Arvagarkir, and he was a famous racehorse in the 18th century who reportedly defeated about a thousand horses in a single race. Damn. Uh, he has a city named after him. Like, he's this famous. And there's a big-ass statue of him there. Like, a huge statue. And he has a blue scarf tied around his neck. So, Vice President Joe fucking Biden decides to visit Mongolia. And as a gift, they give him a Mongol horse. This is like... That's awesome. The coolest thing you can get as a gift, pretty much. That's like if you went to China and they gave you a panda. That's like <laughs> if you went to Japan and they gave you a dragon. Yeah, like, yeah. horses to Mongolia is like fucking dragon to Japan. They don't got those dragons just lying around either. No, they don't. You gotta summon them with the dragon balls. But anyway, he gets this horse, and knowing nothing of Mongol culture, he names it. He names it Celtic immediately. He's like, thank you for this horse. I will name it Celtic. And he puts a blue scarf around the horse's neck, much like that of Avergakir's, that famous racehorse. Mm -hmm. 
As soon as he puts this scarf around the horse's neck, it got scared and reared up and, like, tried to attack him. Nice. And then, like, just, like, a couple, like, you know, rodeo clown Mongols just came out of the barrels and, like, <laughs> took took the horse away from him. And they were like, you're not worthy, you can't handle it. <laughs> so anyway, horse, culture, culture, horse, it's a big deal. Now, in the empire context, the horses are the backbone of the Khanate military. And the Khanate military really develops under this dude we've talked about a lot. If you don't know him, you're an idiot. His name's Genghis Khan, right? Never heard of him. Genghis Khan said, and I quote, and he spoke pretty good English. He said, yo, <laughs> it is easy to conquer the world from the back of a horse. So the basis of Genghis's army was really the relationship between the rider and his horse. They represented a single unit to the army, and they were useless without each other. The soldier relied on his horse for everything in Chinggis Khan's army. The major force within the army, as you, may, you might know, Stephen, uh, was the Mounted Archer Division. Right. And this is the real reason why the Khanate was so fucking terrifying. Trained from youth, uh, Mongol riders were said to be the most skilled horse riders in history. Along with technological advancements alongside rigorous training, this allowed them to be the pinnacle mounted archer. Um, one of these technological advances was the Lajinetta stirrup. And um, stirrups, if you know, they're sort of like uh, these hooks where you put your feet on the sides of your saddle. And they say there are three great technological uh, breakthroughs when it came to using horses in the military. The first one was the chariot. The second one was the saddle. And the third was the stirrup. But the short stirrups that uh, the Khanate used, that the Mongols used, they allowed the riders to actually stand up on the back of their horses to aim their bows and arrows 360 degrees. They were sort of like mobile turrets, and it also allowed for the horses to ride faster. And the horses were also amazing. They were military bred. These military horses of the Mongolian horde, they were, they were special. They were bred so that they required little water, and they did not need to be fed daily. They were actually taught on campaign to forage for their own food nice. when in camp. And this reduced the need for supply lines because the horses were self-sufficient and also the horse of choice for Mongolian, um, like, riders were actually, um, like, female horses that were uh, lactate. I know why. Yeah, so they could just drink that milk. They just, they just drink that milk. Right from the tap, baby. Right from the tap. And also they mixed it with their horse's blood and made this crazy cocktail, yes, which kind of like gave them a bloodthirsty uh, like persona. But that's not really that important. But also, Stephen, what do you not do if you're an army? What is the one thing you don't do? You don't invade Russia, which I know they you did. You don't invade Russia. And these motherfuckers did. You know why? Because they're the Mongols. They, they don't fucking get 
they bred their horses specifically to survive the harsh winter conditions of Russia. The horses were made to fuck up the czars, even though the czars weren't around. Yeah, yet. the czars were not a thing yet. They they weren't around. It was yet. the Kievan also, Rus, not Russia. Yeah, it's like they're just Vikings at this point. You know, the more you know. So anyway, these horses were also bred to be long distance runners, which a lot of people don't actually know. This horses aren't really great long distance runners. It's actually been proven a few times that humans can win marathons over horses. So, oh, I've heard that before. Blow your mind there. Hey, Dave. You know what I would name my Mongolian horse? What do you name your Mongolian horse? Usain Colt. <laughs> oh, my God. Hey, Dave, what would you name your horse? Uh, OJ's Bronco. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh shit. Okay, so also, uh, about the Mongolian horses, they were smaller than other war horses at the time. Uh, so this seems, you know, kind of like a negative, but they carried less weight and they could maneuver better on the battlefield. But it's not just the horse but the relationship between the horse and the rider. It is claimed that a Mongol warrior's horse could be called with a whistle and would follow its master around like a dog, and that a rider trained a group of horses and would take several to war to ensure that they were riding fresh and healthy. So the average soldier, soldier they said, had three horses with him, but generals would bring up to, like, 20. Jesus. And when they weren't at war... They were just with their horses, building relationships, taking care of each other, right? These people fucking love their fucking horses. <laughs> so this relationship was extremely effective in battle. It allowed Chinggis's army to pretty much conquer all of mainland Asia, almost all. It's the fucking Mongolian horde is the largest continuous land empire in history. It's bigger than Napoleon, and it's bigger than Alexander. It's It's huge. It stretches from the Pacific to Europe. And then the Mongol hordes also continued this military dominance far past Chinggis' death, and well past the death of his grandson. You might know Kublai Khan. Check out Marco Polo. Season 2 coming to Netflix, summer 2016. So now, Stephen, hmm. I want to tell you a story, a specific story that has little to do with horses, but something to do with horses. Cool. Okay, so this is the story of Jebai the Arrow. So in 1201 CE, this thing called the Battle of the Thirteen Sides happens. Chinggis Khan had fought and defeated the chief of the Taichud tribe. And during the battle, Chinggis had been shot in the neck with an arrow. He got shot in the fucking neck. So after the battle, Chinggis rounded up the surviving Taichiid archers and demanded to know who shot his horse in the neck. He did not want the enemy army to know he was injured. But in terms of punishment, the severity of injuring a Mongolian's horse was tantamount to injuring himself. Get it? That's how close this fucking bond was was a young mounted archer from the Taichid tribe stepped forward 
his name was Zergadai, and he claimed he had not shot uh, Chingus's horse, but that he had shot Chingus himself. And he was claimed to be the greatest horseback archer that anyone had ever seen. He also claimed he did not fear death and gave fucking Chingus the middle finger right to his face <laughs> and then mooned him and then slapped his butt cheeks. <laughs> but <laughs> he was also a big fan of Chingus and proclaimed that he would be the most loyal warrior in his army if Chingus would spare his life. Now, if you know anything about Chingus Khan, he was fucking ruthless. And he had lots of sex, but he was also considered to be, like, a really honorable guy in that he valued, uh, like, the warrior spirit, and he valued individual rights of, like, the people he conquered and stuff like that. So he saw this guy, Zergadai's bravery, and he was impressed, and he valued the loyalty that he promised to give him. So he accepted... Zugadai's offer on the rule that he would get to rename him to Jebai. Jebai meaning arrow. Nice. And then Jebai became the second most powerful commander under under Chinggis Khan and his most loyal general throughout the Khanate horde. Fucking empire of awesomeness. Right around Europe on your horses, killing motherfuckers. Awesome shit. So that's a cool little story about the horde and how horses played a big role in their everyday lives and their military lives and horses are a big deal when you talk about mongolian history to this day so there's my animal story animals history yeah dude good scrolls man that was awesome thanks yeah that was (laughs) i was very animal-esque-esque so yeah animals so yeah animals right on animals yeah the mongols are crazy man and like i think there it's it's there's not another civilization where an animal is is when you teach about the mongols you teach about the horses right there's not another civilization where you teach about like an animal along with that civilization they don't they don't go kind of go hand in hand like the mongols and horses do which is really interesting yeah the mongols kind of (laughs) believed that they were the horses do you know what i mean yeah like that their spirit was a horse they fucking loved their horses yeah very interesting very interesting well should we move on to something totally different and go jump to my story yeah steven play the music all right dave Yes. So I'm going to take us in a totally different direction. And you kind of looked at a more macro uh, sort of history. I'm going to look very, very micro. And um, Oh, yeah. Yeah, very uh, micro. Very micro. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, oh, I know what you yeah. mean, Stephen. <laughs> uh, my first question I have for you, Dave, is do you like dogs? I like digs. You like dogs? Everybody likes dogs. We all like dogs. You like digs? <laughs> Well, the story I'm gonna I'm gonna be telling you is all about dogs, and the importance that they played on one very tiny town in Alaska. Ooh. And the town I am talking about is Nome, Alaska. And the story I'm gonna be telling is all about the 1925 Serum Run. Now, this okay. is something an event in history that was made very very famous by a movie that came out in the 90s starring. Uh, our Lord and Savior Kevin Bacon. 
<laughs> the movie I am referring to is Balto. Now, Balto, right now, now, polar bears. Now, for 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 most of m- most people our age, Balto was. I, I saw Balto. I don't know how many times. Did you have the same thing? Did you watch Balto a lot? Oh, or is yeah. that just me? Okay. You want to hear? You want to hear something funny? Huh. <laughs> Whenever, um, like, there's like it's something difficult that Cat or I have to do. I'll like look at her and I'll pretend to be the the geese. yes. I'll go. A dog <laughs> cannot make this. Journey oh my god! With the, he's he's doing the thing with his hand. But maybe a, a wolf, wolf can. can. Yes. <laughs> oh. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. I watched the trailer to prep for this, and it like. Oh yeah, that's what you need to do. You know? Yeah, I can't. It can't. It, dude, it came back. It all came back. So the story specifically the two. The two dogs I'm going to be talking about, and really I'm going to be talking about one in particular, and it's not Balto. It's a dog named Togo. And Togo. Togo, yeah. And so, so Balto is made really famous by two things. One, the movie, of course. Um, and also, Balto has a statue in uh, in Manhattan, New York, right? and yeah, in Manhattan, in um, uh, Central Park. Yeah, that big ass green thing. In that, the yeah, the big green thing. <laughs> Uh, so 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 let me let me let me do some some quick background before we kind of jump into things. So most people know about Balto, and like I said, they know him from from the two things from the animated movie in the '90s and um from the statue. Uh, but Stephen, do people know about the Balto sequel? <laughs> <laughs> Balto did have sequels. I have not seen any of them. I think there's like seven. There there's several. They're all bullshit. Uh, they're not canon, and uh, <laughs> they're not. <canon. laughs> But, but you know, one thing, like, a lot of these movies do is they tend to kind of wrap in, a, like, a lot of different characters or events and kind of push them all into, like, this one central thing. So, Balto kind of encompasses – Balto from the movie kind of encompasses a lot of different dogs, personalities, Togo being the biggest one. And so, uh, since Togo is so unknown, I kind of want to do a bit of backstory because his backstory is actually really crazy. And uh, it could have actually made a really, really good movie, really good anime movie. Anyway, so Togo was uh, the the son of a lead dog, and so when I say lead dog, I mean the dog at the very front of the uh, of the of the mushing group, right? And so they're the ones that are kind of they're leading all the other dogs, and they're kind of the eyes for the musher. So Togo was the son of a lead dog for a musher named Leonard Sapala. And um, Togo, when he was born, he was the runt of the litter. He's very small. He was also very rowdy. He kind of he was very hard to control. He was very hard to tame. And obviously, when you're taming a mushing team, they have to really kind of listen to you. He was really hard to tame. So Sapala says, "All right, well, I'm just going to give you away. You're going to become a house dog." So 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 Togo becomes a house dog, and that's only lasts for a few weeks. Eventually, Togo jumps through through a freaking window. And run back, runs back to Sapala. And Sapala is so impressed by this. He was so impressed by Togo that he decided to keep him around and try to work with him. Um, but he was still really, really rowdy. He liked to do this thing where he would fight the bigger dogs and try to like assert his dominance. And like he would just get the shit beat out of him. And he actually he got attacked really badly by uh, a bigger dog. And was had to be kind of kind of recover for a few weeks. And after that, after that, he really kind of stopped fucking with the other dogs. He kind of learned his lesson. But uh, one day, Sapala goes on this run, and it's a several day run, and he leaves Togo behind. 
And the next day after he stays in kind of like a safe house, like a little retreat for uh, mushers, he notice, notices that Togo had been following him the whole time. And so he sees this dedication and he decides to allow Togo to kind of run with them. And Togo's kind of fucking with the other dogs and trying to steer him off in other directions. And so he decides to... <laughs> oh, Togo. You know, good old Togo. And so, and this is when he's still like very much a puppy. He's, he's only a few months old. He ends up uh, throwing a harness on Togo. And this is like, for some reason, totally like clicks for him. And Togo just like stays in line. He's in the back. And eventually, uh, you know, throughout the journey, he kind of works his way up and he becomes lead dog. And... Ever since he became lead dog, he never left that position. He became Sapala's lead dog. So that's kind of a backstory of Togo, who's it's really, really cool. Um, but I kind of want to talk about the 1925 serum run now. This is my story. This is the story I'm going to tell about Togo and about Balto and about several other dogs. So Nome, Alaska, just to give you kind of ge- geographic sense of where they are, they're located right near the northern tip of Alaska. So pretty much where it's really cold and in the middle of bumfuck nowhere. They're literally... It's really cold they're, all the time. All the, it's, it's cold all the time up there. And um, the town itself is pretty pretty tiny. Um, it's, the, it's the biggest... It is the biggest town above, like, the halfway point in Alaska. So, you know, most of the towns... Uh, reside right on like the the southern kind of coastline of alaska this is the largest town above the midway point and it's made up of nine of, of 455 alaska natives and 975 settlers so kind of just just below 1500 people live in this town um and dog sled teams were a very crucial part of this town they were used for pretty much everything and as a primary form of kind of getting supplies and communication to the outside world they were used they were used as this primary form of transportation before planes um became sturdy enough for the flight because planes just simply couldn't make it all the way out to Nome with the conditions and um this occurs right around the 1930s when they're able to do this but this is 1925 and so there's and there's really only really only (laughs) you almost made they almost (laughs) made it um so there's really only two main ways that you get things to and from Nome. The first is by dog sled team, obviously. The second is by ship. But the catch is that once it once it starts getting too cold, ships can't make their way up to Nome because of the ice. So, well, one one because of the ice, and two because it's just too dangerous. And so, this is another like, oh, they almost made it. Uh, so in 1925, Doctor Curtis Welch is the only doctor in Nome, and he diagnoses a child with tonsillitis. However, we know now that this was not tonsillitis. This was this infection called diphtheria. And this is a throat throat infection that can be very, very lethal, at least at the time period. And worst of all, it can survive outside of the body for several weeks. So very, very dangerous. And so uh, Dr. Welch, he first, he he, he doesn't think really anything of this other other than it being tonsillitis he doesn't think it's uh, diphtheria but the child dies a day after the the diagnosis And 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 right after this an alarming number of cases of tonsillitis began to pop up throughout the throughout now so then eventually welch kind of realizes what he's got on his hands he realizes that the the severity of this infection and um and so what he decides to do is he quickly quarantines those infected 
And but he knows this is only temporary. They don't have the supplies to keep things sanitary, and it's a very infectious disease. It can be spread just by being in the same room with someone who has it. Yeah. Um, and it nor- and it usually targets children because I mean obviously their their immune s- uh, systems are a bit weaker. What are you about to say? Because they're weak. Because they're, they're, <laughs> they're weak and they're easy to take out. Uh, and the 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 bacteria can smell fear on them. Uh, oh god! But there there is an anti antitoxin. That was pretty common. In fact, Dr. Welch had a good amount of this antitoxin. However, the only thing is that his supply was all expired. And that sucks. And so, in fact, there's there's uh, there's a story that says or not a story, but part of part part of the story says that, you know, one of the one of the the second children that got infected, the second child that got infected uh, Dr. Welch realizes this and he he's kind of faced with this dilemma where he's like, do I give them the expired antitoxin and it could potentially either help them or it could make them weaker and more susceptible to the the disease, to the infection. And he ends up not giving them the antitoxin. They die the next day. That's baloney. I the mean, they're third... going to die no matter well, what. Well, okay, so listen, the third victim comes up. Dr. Welch learns his, learns his lesson, gives him the, the antitoxin kid dies anyway and so and so he really knows he's kind of sol and worst of all they just missed the last ship up to Nome for the for the year Uh you almost almost made it so so there's this really famous scene in balto that's still it's one of those scenes like from a movie you know you have those movies from your childhood there's a specific scene that's stuck in your head yeah this this scene from balto it's dr welch gets over and it's morse code and he's got the little the little tapper stop. thing, yeah. And he says like the stop, and it's like like yada 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 stop. So so Doctor Welch he gets um onto his little tapper thing, and he he taps out some Morse code and to really anyone that he can reach, saying that um that he needed uh he de- they desperately needed one million units of antitoxin. And when I say one million units, I don't mean like one million vials. It's like it, it, it's each patient needs a, like a few thousand units of this antitoxin. And so it's not a huge, crazy amount. Um, but he desperately, he's desperately, desperately asking for 1 million units of antitoxin. And his message gets out, and 1 million units were located uh, uh, out, I think, near California on the West Coast. And they were prepared to ship to Alaska, but there was a huge problem. The closest town that the packages could be delivered to by train was 674 miles away from Nome. Fuck. And this is nine. 90- that, that's like the distance between me and you right now. Yeah, exactly. It's a huge distance, and this is 1925 during the winter in northern Alaska. Yeah, it's fuck. the worst possible conditions. And so, in order to get the medicine, the final 674 miles, a relay of sled teams was kind of established and set up. And it was made up of 20 mushers. And they were going to kind of relay this medicine all the way to Nome. Um, and so it, it starts off, uh, it's dropped off by the train. And immediately without like, you know, within minutes of receiving the serum, the first musher, musher takes off. And um, it's actually kind of sad. He uh, he's, he's going with a bunch of inexperienced dogs. And uh, he ends up having to leave four or five dogs behind at a check checkpoint. And just kind of assume that the dogs died, and he actually received kind of uh, a, a, several of the mushrooms. This happened to, but he received a lot or a significant amount 
of frostbite on his face. That's like oh, that's like man. and, and let, let me let me explain how cold it is here. It's in like the negative between the negative thirties and fifties, and with man. the wind chill in the negative eighties. It's very very cold. In fact, I I was reading something that described it was negative twenty in Nome. It was a very it was an unusually warm day. Negative twenty was Jesus warm. Christ. <laughs> um. So it's going through several 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 different mushers, and eventually the serum ends up in the hands of Sapala and Togo, and they were tasked with not only covering the most ground of any team, but also the most dangerous section. Sapala, with his team, with Togo, traveled 170 miles from Nome to the pickup point. So Sapala picks up the serum, turns around, and races immediately back towards the direction of Nome straight through a winter storm fuck yes yeah and so for the most most of the time so paula has very little visibility and had to really trust toga toga had to really trust togo in leading the leading the way which togo did in fact togo directed the team to the safe house where they could rest for a few hours and if togo had not found the safe house the team would have definitely died like no doubt about it, the team would not have lasted. So Togo almost like single-handedly, just like was able to define the safe house. Um, so all in all, Togo ended up running seven hundred and fifty miles. Jesus fuck! And this is in the course of like a few days. He gave so much to this trip that he never ran again. So, where's Balto? Let me, let me get to this. Okay. So now we kind of move on towards the end of the journey. Eventually, the serum was passed off to this guy named Gunnar Kassen, and his okay. lead dog is Balto. Okay. And they cover the remaining leg of the journey, and whether that was actually worse than Sapala's. In fact, Balto, ran, Balto kept his team on the trail in almost total darkness. Jesus. And um, eventually, they made it all the way to ba- back to Nome without it breaking a single vial of serum. Damn. There's actually this story where the winds are so bad that they knock over the sled and knock yeah. all the serum into the snow. And Cassin uh, uh, digs through the snow, takes off his gloves and digs through the snow to find the serum, actually suffering frostbite on his fingers. So that he... Wait, is that Cassin or Gunner? Uh, Gunner Cassin. That's his name. Okay. Um, I'm getting confused. No, no, no. It's okay. Uh, Sapala is, is Togo's uh, musher. Kassin okay. is Balto's musher. Gotcha. And um, he eventually finds the serum and suffering frostbite on his fingers in the process and uh, brings it back to Nome. And so um, all in all, the teams cover 674 miles in 127 hours. Jesus. That's about as long as it takes to get your hand stuck in a rock and then remove your arm. Exactly. Almost, And this is almost done entirely in blizzard conditions. And so, damn how, like <laughs> yeah right it's insane it's it's and it's considered like today it's considered nearly impossible yeah that the fact that that, I that, mean, that they did that nearly impossible back then you know exactly and because like these dogs they go fast but they don't go that fast and the fact they were able to make it 674 miles in 127 hours is insane and the result of this because I'm going to be super real because of these dogs. I mean, the mushers played their part, but it was mostly because these dogs, they they were 
they were able to really save the town. The total death toll in the town was between five and seven people. Without the dogs, they could have easily been in the hundreds. Yeah. It could have been worse in the hundreds. It could have it could have wiped out. It could have been everyone. The, yeah, it, it could it could have wiped out a significant portion of this town. And so, in a large part, they owe this to to Togo and to Balto and to all the other dogs. The fact that they are able to get the serum to Nome. And after they get uh, they get the serum there, they're regarded as national heroes. Not just the mushers, but the dogs as national heroes. The mushers get letters from Calvin Coolidge and other state officials and celebrities, and like they're they're regarded as heroes. And this is when we start to see this kind of drama unfold. Um, Cassin takes a lot of the credit and kind of is a huge kind of spotlight hog and presents <laughs> Balto as being this huge hero, and it really pisses off not only Sapala, but, like, every other single person in Nome. Because they know that Sapala was the one who really, really had the dangerous end of things, who really had the dangerous journey. And it, and it kind of alienates uh, Kassin and Balto from from the city themselves, because the, the, the people in Nome still kind of uh, regard Togo as being the hero. Of of yeah. uh, Togo and Sapala as being the hero of the 1925 serum run. That's just um, I thought a little little bit of interesting fact. But that's my story of how animals kind of shaped history, and I think it's I think it's really really kind of incredible. It's, it's crazy that well, first of all, good scrolls. Thank you. But second of all, it's really crazy how that was very much like a Paul Revere Israel Bissell story. That's exactly what like, I was thinking when I was reading this almost exactly right and uh like i don't know who togo is i think of that as like you know a country right right uh, but fucking i love balto yeah fucking he steps in the snow and he's got the wolf print and he's got his fucking his girlfriend red dog and the northern lights and steel is an asshole yeah and uh yeah that's good that's a good story i learned I learned about animals. Yeah, today. dude. I think we both learned about animals today, and I think animals. <laughs> I think this the one word topic worked out pretty well here. Speaking of topic shit, <laughs> <laughs> you got anything? What is this? This twenty three. This twenty three. Shit. Well, while I, I'm gonna stall for time real quick, um, <clears throat> so. We we've got twenty five coming up real soon. Okay, and we've been talking about talking. about kind of having a fun special episode for twenty five, and so we're not going to say what it is yet. We want people to send in their favorite historical misconceptions that they love to hate. Okay, and we we're not going to say exactly what we're going to do, but. But send those in to us, and uh, we'll, we'll put them to good use. Um, but, yeah, so that, that's going to be coming up, episode 25. Be on the lookout for that, and we'll have some big news during that episode. But topic for next week, for number 24. Holy shit. Uh, Holy shit. Next week, I got a good one. All right, let me hear it. How about we discuss two covert operations super sneaky i like but it but you're not allowed to do bay of pigs okay. and you're not allowed to do zero dark 30 okay deal fair enough deal fair enough Sound dude good? i like that yeah 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 we can we can definitely we'll, we'll come up with some good stuff 
cool. All right. So um, next week we're going to be doing covert operations. Um, before we go, real quick, I want to do some quick plugs. Uh, so we are – our base of operations is uh, Bad History – podcast.podbean.com check us out there you can download episodes directly from there uh, you can also check us out on iTunes uh, just type in bad history you'll find us you can leave us a rating and review you can subscribe Don't you can do all of that stuff um, do it. we're on Facebook and Twitter Facebook bad history podcast Twitter at bad history cast uh, you can email us Don't. at bad history podcast or pad bad history podcast at gmail.com there we go Don't do um also i have some very exciting news no, you don't. yeah i do but i do dave we are on two new pretty big platforms first of all google play music launched their new podcasting service um and we got approved a while ago for that and we are up there now so if you Sweet. if you use google play music um i know android uses it a lot they're gonna eventually i think they're they're moving it uh to ios here soon um but if you use that you can find us on there we're for sure on there i checked us out earlier today um if you guys get us in the top 10 podcasts on the new google play thing i will drunkenly post fully nude photos Mm. of myself to the internet so make it happen guys but no if you guys could get us in like the top like 50 history podcasts even the top 50 history podcasts i would like i don't know man That'd be cool. That would be cool. That'd be really cool. So that yeah, that'd be awesome. Also, we're on a um, uh, a site called TuneIn Radio, um, and I know TuneIn Radio is 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 used as kind of like an online radio feature for like NPR and like local radio stations and stuff like that. They also do podcasts, and we got approved for that again today, so we're up there as well. Um, so two new kind of directory sites that you can check us out on. Um, and then also, again, real quick, your favorite historical misconception that you love to hate, send it in to us, and we'll be taking advantage of those uh, for episode 25. Uh, but I think that is it for me. Anything else you want to add, Dave? Nope. Just want to wish everybody uh, happy history and good school. I'll see you later, guys. Bye.